Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions, wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Tolberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together we can help make our world at least a little bit better. One of the fundamental divides in Europe today is over social, cultural and religious values. The divide pits the increasingly illiberal East against the liberal West, with leaders like Hungary's President Orban and Poland's President Duda trying to change not only their own country's laws and institutions, but to shift the center of gravity of Europe's values to the right. How likely are they to succeed? Will they change their national realities or will they make changes on the larger European or even global stages? My guests today are deeply involved in these issues and both are engaged in this cultural conflict. Both are lawyers. Susanna Ruzinska Bluzit serves at Poland's Office of the Commissioner for Human Rights and Andras Lederer is the Senior Advocacy Officer of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Welcome. Welcome. Hello. Let me start with the meta question. Do Hungary and Poland really belong to the Europe of the early 21st century? Susanna? Well, of course, of course. And uh, my answer would never be uh, other than, of course, we do belong uh, into Europe, uh, into the European values. We are uh, in the European Union for now over 15 years, and uh, we are part of the European family, and, and we will, I hope. However, as you mentioned in your introduction, there are certain well, obstacles to this, and uh, our some of our politicians try to drift apart from European Union. Andres, Susanna was optimistic, but I did notice you used the word I hope, or the words I hope. Um, I'm sure you hope as well, but what do you think? Uh, it, does, is Hungary really part of the Europe that's evolving in 2021? I think the one of the questions is, uh, and I don't want to circumvent the answer, but what do you understand by Europe? And if you look at the past 10 years uh, of uh, uh, certain policy developments in Europe itself, you see that, uh, for example, Orban had a quite significant impact on, uh, on some of them. So I'm not sure whether you can actually make uh, 10 years after uh, the second uh, government of, of Prime Minister Viktor Orban took office and by now consolidated its illiberal regime in Hungary. I'm not sure you can actually make that distinction so easily. Uh, that's one of the answers. The other answer is that there is, I think, a, a huge difference between the political elite in Hungary, and I'm, I think it's quite similar in Poland to many ways. So what you see about Hungary when you look at the political elite and what you would see of Hungary if you would talk to the 10 million inhabitants in the country, it's not the same. So there have been for the past many years uh, regular uh, you know, suggestions why Hungary is not leaving the EU. Um, why 
the prime minister is not uh, changing course and leaving the EU, especially after Brexit. Uh, you have these debates recurring every now and then, and there is a very clear answer to that. Over 80% of the population is in clear favor of being part of the European Union. And it's not just about financial matters, but it's also about ideas and a sense of belonging. I think it's the same in Poland. So for for us, Eastern European countries, um, the time I remember very well, very vividly, when we joined the EU in 2004, it was such an honest uproar of celebration, the sense of we finally arrived, that I think it would take a lot of energy uh, to turn this around and to create a, a population that is uh, in favor of leaving uh, this community, which is, again, not just a community community of, of uh, business interests and financial interests, but of values as well. To the point you just made, there's very little evidence that either the Hungarian leadership or the Polish leadership want to leave Europe, leave the European institutions. There's a lot of evidence they want to change them. And there's a nonstop war between Brussels and Budapest and Brussels and Warsaw. Practically every week you see yet another front open in that struggle. Two very related but different questions. One, you imply that Europe is changing perhaps towards Orban. And two, the question about this constant struggle. Nobody wants to kick either country out and neither country wants to leave. So there's always a compromise, good European fashion. But in the process, it looks to be a mess. There are many answers to those issues. I think that Europe right now has to answer some crucial questions as to what it is and where it wants to head. As Andres said, also in Poland, there is a very strong support for the idea of European Union, understood generally as a democracy, a rule of law, and human rights um, union community. However, when you look closer, and when you look at the values you mentioned, Alan, there is no common consent. And the last month in Poland, uh, which were torn by the uh, protest regarding reproductive rights, are the best example. So the question is, how deep EU wants to involve into the national acts, into the national laws that regulate uh, the relations between the society. And um, I, I wouldn't answer that EU is uh, less or more liberal. I would say it's, it's hesitant. Uh, and uh, the very good example is uh, the reform of uh, justice uh, system in Poland, which is clearly uh, going into the direction of comp competitive authoritarianism, uh, so to call it, or illiberal democracy. So um, this is what the law and justice, uh, well, taking an example of Orban, wants to do so to subordinate the justice system into the hands of politicians. And I think that uh, EU has shown to be a toothless tiger in this battle. 
And the question is not uh, only regarding the values, but also how deep EU wants to get involved and uh, how uh, much control it wants to keep uh, regarding the national legal system. Andras? Yeah, it's... Um... <clears throat> I think what Zuza said, I, I, I agree with most of it, but um, there is one issue where, where I think Poland and Hungary is a bit different. I have the strong feeling that the Polish regime is actually, they actually believe in the values they are propagating. They actually believe that what they are trying to push through, for example, regarding reproductive rights, is the right thing to do. Uh, I'm not saying that that's better or worse, but compared to that, the Hungarian um, uh, illiberal regime, I think, is extremely cynical. So in that sense, anything can be put on the agenda, and at any given day, just the exact opposite could become um, the top uh, of the agenda. And from the EU's perspective, this many of these issues rather seem like a policy debate or technical questions of implementation of various EU law instruments. And they, for a very long time, the EU, I think, failed to understand what is actually happening here. It's beginning to wake up, uh, and I hope it's not too late. But uh, there is certainly a shift um, just to give you one example, last December, um, after a tremendous amount of debates and veto threats and actual vetoes by both the Polish and the Hungarian government, finally the EU introduced a new mechanism to ensure that EU uh, development funds, which pay a crucial role in both countries' uh, uh, budgets, they can only be spent in line with basic principles of the rule of law. We'll see how this mechanism will work in practice, but I think that shows that the EU is slowly waking up. However, um, the, when I referred to in the beginning to uh, the problem of the definition of what the 21st century Europe means uh, and how certain policies we're making them making their way into other European countries. I I didn't highlight the other side of the coin, which is once these are not about minor policy issues, once these discussions are no longer at the technical level, but at more fundamental value level debates, then the vast majority of the population in Western European member states they are against the illiberalization of Europe. And that gives me a lot of hope in the sense that there is stronger resilience among other member states and also among EU institutions to these kind of, uh, of political regimes. Some policy issues might still get through, but the way decisions are made, the way we reach uh, to these results uh, will hopefully never be similar to what's happening in Hungary and in Poland. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. That's also the way into the domestic political question in both countries. 
because in both Poland and Hungary, there is clearly a deep divide between right and left, conservative, illiberal, and liberal, maybe religious and secular. You see it over all sorts of issues, reproductive rights, migration, etc. But in both countries, the right keeps on winning elections. So you've both implied that there is a gap between the political elite and the people, yet, however the elections are working, people keep on voting for these regimes. Narrow margins, I'm not arguing overwhelming margins, but narrow margins are still margins. Why do the more liberal kinds of politicians, kinds of political ideas seem to lose elections in both of your countries? There are, there are plenty of reasons for sure, and I think some of them uh, resemble the reasons that were um, analyzed after the Trump election uh, a few years ago. So, um, first of all, I would say that um, transformation in Poland, which happened in 1989, as we all know, and was a perfect example of, uh, uh, of a democratic and peaceful transformation uh, in the former Soviet bloc. Well, the transformation was not of the same value for everyone. And there was huge uh, dispar disparity of welfare between the bigger cities and smaller cities and villages. Some social groups were left behind and uh, we, well, the, the politicians, I say we as, as, as Poland, but some politicians also forgot uh, of protecting some of the basic rights like social housing or protection against abusing, abusive practices uh, at the labor market. I know it sounds uh, maybe... Um, uh, weird when we talk about abusive uh, practices on the labor market, uh, considering the U.S. Uh, legal system when it comes to uh, labor law. But in Europe, we are very much used to strong protection when it comes to employment. So um, transformation was not of the same value. And 20, uh, 2015, which was the year when law and justice came into power, was also a very special year. We have to remember that this was the first hit uh, of the uh, migrant crisis in the European Union. So it was very easy for the right-wing parties uh, to reach for power, um, gather people around the ideology based on traditional values, on national pride, and just win the election, addressing the fears that were among the uh, society. But of course, Alan, I see your face and I can, uh, I can imagine that your question will be okay. But in the meantime, there was another election. So it wasn't the mig uh, cri uh, migrant crisis here. And people saw what happened during the four years of the law and justice ruling in Poland, so that many reforms uh, were against the constitution and were just illegal, and I'm not afraid to say this as a lawyer. So my answer would be that uh, also uh, for uh, many years now, I would say from the beginning on, of transformation, 
the legal education, the democratic education, the civic education was just neglected. And nobody paid attention to what uh, to to building a strong civic society in Poland and to building the the sense of belonging. And it's really needed in a society that was torn, uh, that was uh, well maybe not torn, but that was soaked into Homo Sovieticus mentality for over fifty years. So I think leaving behind some issues, leaving behind some groups on the one hand, and then uh, lack of introducing the uh, decent education into what those abstract values like rule of law or tripartite division of powers are, led to the illiberal and populistic groups to take over power. Andres, the same question, but with a slightly different twist. Orban has been around for a while already, as has his as he does. Um, are they on the rise or on, are they on the fall? What do you think their trajectory is? Because it isn't just how did we get to this moment, but whether where we're going. And Susanna made the point that in Poland, uh, they were reelected. In, in Hungary, they've been reelected. Still close margins. But, but how do you see the future? from a democratic point of view? Um, the situation is also uh, different in Hungary compared to Poland because, not just because of the length of time the regime has been in power, but because of the extremely extensive uh, changes it introduced to, to the political landscape. And I'm not simply talking about new election system, a new fundamental law or constitution, if you like, and so on, but uh, uh, there has been, a, a, I would say, a complete uh, reshaping of how public works and how the society works. Uh, what I mean, for example, is the total takeover of uh, state-owned media, which I know is a very minuscule, probably completely irrelevant issue in the U.S., but uh, in most Eastern European states, and especially in Hungary, public media, which is practically state-owned media, uh, has still the largest reach in the country. Uh, turning that into uh, a 1984 Orwell-style propaganda machine is very effective, because if people can only watch that, and there is nothing else to watch, and they don't speak other languages, so they can't you know, fact-check what they are being told, then that reality, over 10 years, becomes your reality. So I think that the situation, one of the reasons why it's different in Hungary is this. Um, the other reason I completely agree with, with what uh, Zuse said about uh, the legacy uh, we have from the 20th century. Uh, there is one further thing which didn't occur in Poland, but uh, was the foundation of the Kada regime uh, of uh, the post-1955, uh, uh, 1956 revolution um, in Hungary is a compromise made between the political elite and the population. And the compromise was very basic. As long as the political elite provides for a growing standard of living, or at least can upkeep that standard of living, the population is not going to complain 
and people are not going to try to enter politics and enter public life. And that kind of compromise, I think, is one of the most serious uh, threats to any kind of democracy, because it tells you that you are not a citizen who should get involved actively in public matters, but you should keep your mouth shut as long as you meet ends at the end of the month. And uh, when you have generations of people go growing up like this in a country, um, that really stays with you. So if you see uh, how the EU development funds help uh, upkeeping a standard of living in Hungary, uh, you see how this kind of compromise, um, uh, how people say, well, um, uh, I would rather not criticize this and that because I have a job and, you know, I can see what's happening to other people who stand up and criticize certain policies or maybe the entire government. Um, I, I don't want to risk uh, losing my status. I don't want to risk what I have right now. It's fine. Um, so whether I'm hopeful or not, I see the new numbers. Uh, you know, we have elections next year. Uh, the opposition is trying a different methodology, how to run uh, compared to the past years. This is, again, a technical issue. Uh, I see that uh, the, the, the opposition is gaining popularity, but uh, uh, at the same time, the structural problems remain the same. Uh, and one last remark, um, especially after what happened in the US uh, in January, you'll really understand that if someone or and, it, and if especially if it's not a person but uh, a, a large group of people uh, feel that they have a lot to lose um, then the question of willingness of uh, holding free and fair elections which already was not completely the case three years ago according to osc monitoring uh, mission and whether they are going to uh, agree to a peaceful transition, especially taking into account all the constitutional changes they introduced, uh, I have my, my doubts. So I think the next year elections is not simply a question of whether the opposition gets more votes or Fidesz gets more votes. It's going to be a much more complicated and complex story. Susan? Yeah, I just wanted to add to what Anders said that it's it's about dignity and uh, respecting this dignity by politicians and uh, uh, being a observer and uh, active human rights lawyer in the Polish public life. I must say that we have problems with respecting this uh, individual's dignity, and I think this is the starting point of uh, populistic groups taking power in, in Poland, at least. So uh, Law and Justice introduced, for example, this monthly payment for each child. And many opposition politicians uh, claim that this is why people keep on voting for Law and Justice. But the truth is that uh, parents uh, that have plenty of children had problems with sending their children to for vacations, with buying them new books for school, and nobody saw them. So uh, this was, again, the, the matter of dignity and noticing the problems of underprivileged groups. 
So uh, I think uh, it's not only about the illiberal trends and populistic trends in our region, but it's also the matter of quality of opposition that uh, doesn't want to see those uh, groups and uh, respect them in, in the, in the way they need to be respected. Yeah, both of you have actually made the point that these governments do a good job of delivering to the people what they need. Uh, it's a bit like the old Bob Dylan song, not necessarily what they want. Um, let's add the pandemic to the witch's brew. Clearly, one consequence has been extraordinary powers granted to governments all over the place. Borders have been closed, curfews imposed, shops, schools, churches closed. Everybody's experienced that more or less. Some are beginning to unwind, but put aside where we are at this moment. As you think about the future, sooner or later, the COVID will be behind us, inshallah. What do you think will be the lingering consequences in your countries? of the COVID experience in this regard? I'm, I'm really afraid that the consequence will be a drift from the uh, underprivileged group protection, from the minority uh, rights, like in Poland, LGBTQ people, uh, people with disabilities, uh, into the rights of community, like uh, that, that have that also have their needs and has have not been addressed uh, systematically like healthcare system you know the, the covid proved that our healthcare system uh, does not function properly we knew that before but now uh, we see the utmost urgency to deal with that so i think that uh, the the government will take care of healthcare system of uh, uh, pension system but will neglect the protection of minorities and uh, it will be easily justified by the pandemic that uh, took such a great toll uh, of uh, uh, of people that are struggling with consequences or uh, with the number, the, the toll, uh, the death toll that we've seen in Poland. But the problem is also something that it's well, hard for me to explain in English, but I will try, uh, that we, step by step, we get used to the limitations of our democratic freedoms and rights. So, for example, COVID uh, enabled uh, our government to uh, ban public gatherings. Public gatherings that are one of the crucial things in democracy to criticize the government, to claim uh, what we want to claim, for example, protest against some new laws. So the government easily could just introduce a ban on public gatherings. And since at the beginning people were protesting against that, we got used to it. And I'm afraid that some of the limitations will stay with us for not only in this um, interim period, but will also stay forever, for decades, and uh, the, cha the, the face of our democracy will change. Andras, how do you see the lingering consequences of COVID for your country? I think they are tragic. And one of the reasons why, why they are so tragic is that uh, the Hungarian government has been traditionally uh, the Orban government for a long time, 
adopting policies that are rather against uh, the bottom uh, 10, 15, 20% of society. So unlike what Zuse was saying about the Polish example of, of giving uh, um, uh, funds to families in need, the Hungarian social transfers were significantly reduced over the past 10 years. I just saw a number uh, yesterday. Uh, it's about 5% of the GDP. Uh, the decrease amounts to about 5% of the GDP. That's a very significant amount of reduction of social transfers. Um, so when the COVID hit uh, uh, society last year, and you know people first had just to shut down this and that shop and the restaurant and the bar, but within a few weeks and months, people actually started to lose their job as well. And there was very little... Uh, to fall back on for these families. And it's been going on for a year now uh, in Hungary. There were some restrictions lifted in the summer, but now they are again in place for months now. And the government uh, has been saying very clearly that they are not willing to change social policies. So what I'm really terrified about is that once COVID uh, is gone, from uh, the, the cover pages of uh, uh, the media, and they will start talking to people, everyday uh, people in the cities, but also in the villages, about their reality, uh, how their life prospects look like currently, uh, we'll see a very, very green picture. And because the government has a very different policy to address it than what, for example, I personally believe would be helpful in such a situation, uh, I, I, I'm afraid that uh, social tensions will just grow after uh, lifting of the restrictions. And similarly, what Zuse said, I mean, the Hungarian healthcare system, and it goes back decades uh, it's not the responsibility of this particular government, but the Hungarian healthcare system. Uh, is in shambles, is, is, is absolutely uh, unable to, to, to deal with this uh, problem. And not because of the lack of you know, doctors and nurses, but uh, it's more a structural issue. Uh, again, people are seeing it now and people are getting extremely frustrated uh, by what they see, but whether they will be able to uh, pressure either uh, Fidesz or the opposition into coming up with policy solutions uh, to these matters, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite skeptical. Let me ask for my penultimate question about the Istanbul Convention. It's in the headlines these days because Turkey has just withdrawn from the treaty. The Istanbul Convention is the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, as you both know. Uh, Hungary has refused to ratify. Poland did ratify, but is debating withdrawing and seems to be trying to get other countries to adopt a uh, almost the opposite convention, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe. Is this playing to a domestic audience? Is it playing to an international audience? Um, why in either Poland or Hungary is this important to the politicians? Andres? In many cases, we are not talking about meaningful uh, debates and discussions, but it's merely a very cynical uh, uh, political calculation. 
the uh, Istanbul Convention was absolutely unknown to the Hungarian public until the government decided that because the Central European University and another university in Budapest offered a gender studies course, which is apparently some kind of uh, Western liberal Soroshis conspiracy, uh, spreading LGBT propaganda and whatnot, um, they have to stop these courses. And then I guess someone in the government realized that there is this convention that Hungary ratified, but actually never implemented in practice. And although it's supposed to deal with domestic violence issues, there is the word gender in the convention. So now let's use it for propaganda purposes and fight with an enemy that they drew themselves. So in Hungary, the, the whole Istanbul convention is not about domestic violence. Civil society, women's rights groups, um, victims of domestic violence, they try to explain to the public that this is what the convention is about and explain why we actually need to implement it, even if they de decide to walk back from it, such as Turkey, at least let's change the domestic uh, regulations in order to ensure that the domestic violence, the numbers decrease, that victims receive immediate and effective assistance and so on. Don't call it the convention, but make the positive changes. This discussion falls on deaf ears because for the government, again, this topic is about creating an enemy, the so-called gender ideology, and saying that the convention, the Istanbul Convention, is just one of the elements of this gender ideology. Um, and that's the point when any kind of meaningful discussion, be that on how to reduce domestic violence, what to do with victims of violence, why we have such a huge rate of domestic violence in Hungary, I guess the same is unfortunately true for Poland and many other Eastern European countries, all of these discussions they are off the table because everything becomes uh, so extremely politicized uh, through the, the, the government's agenda. So in Hungary, cynicism is part of the motivation. In Poland, it looks more organic from a distance. It looks much more organic, uh, LGBT ideology-free charters, uh, cities and regions declaring themselves LGBT-free. Uh, and so forth. Zeus, is that, is that fair? Is it more organic? Yes, I'm nodding because I agree with you. Um, the narrative is very similar to Hungarian. So um, gender ideology is the biggest or has been the big, biggest enemy, a public enemy for three or four consecutive years until the cri migrant crisis hit and until the biggest enemy became the LGBTQ community. However, as Alan, you mentioned, uh, this is more organic. Uh, I would say, and this is not exaggeration, I would say we are on a war in Poland. This is the ideological war. And maybe the difference between Poland and Hungary is church. Uh, the Catholic Church that has the huge 
uh, immense uh, impact upon Polish politics. It's it's the main player, I would say, when it comes to uh, enacting uh, legal acts that has to do with some uh, some of the social sphere uh, or uh, or individual relations. So. I would say that it's as 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 uh, Andres said. It's not about the domestic violence and uh, fighting uh, with domestic violence to the best possible uh, means, but it's about the war, ideological war between the liberal West and what what it's called in Poland the traditional Catholic values, and uh, well. I must say, and and this this is uh, my cynical remark, but uh, I guess part of our traditional values is that we are not looking what's happening in the private sphere. We are not looking into people's bedrooms, into people's houses. It's 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 the sphere of family, and family is protected. So law shouldn't go and protect the uh, the. Uh, domestic uh, abuse victims. It should leave the families alone. Uh, but uh, but of course, uh, what what's used by the politicians is gender ideology. Is that uh, the Istanbul Convention protects only women, which is not true, but it's easily used by the populistic politicians. And uh, the truth is that. Exactly the same uh, narrative is used uh, against the LGBT com community because it's easy to call LGBT not people but ideology. So the right wing politicians are saying we are not fighting with uh, human rights, we are not fighting with uh, gay or lesbians, we are fighting with the ideology. Let me end with a personal question. You're both fighting the good fight in the face of formidable and I think growing odds. I can't imagine either of you are terribly popular with your respective governments. What motivates you? How do you get up every day and do it again? Andras? It's hard. I mean, the easy, the easy answer to that is that uh, it's in my blood. Uh, I, I come from a family where, you know, that's what they were doing. Um, but uh, there is also another thing. Uh, which is that uh, I lived in other countries. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very privileged uh, in that sense. And at every place, some parts of life was much easier. But I, it might sound strange, but I am a true Hungarian in so many sense. Um, I, I love Hungarian poetry. That's, uh, that, that's kind of oxygen for me. And that's not something you can so easily enjoy if you move to another country where people speak a different language. That poetry is also interesting, but I miss, um, or the same goes for contemporary writers and culture. So um, at some point I always realized that uh, I wanna go back home. And that means that I have to work towards creating uh, 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 a life here which I can live in comfortably. Uh, and, you know, I'm an open, I'm one of the few uh, publicly open 
uh, gay public figures. Uh, I happen to be Jewish and I happen to fight for the rights of refugees. I mean, how lucky uh, you can get to get all these free uh, in, in, in such circumstances. So use your luck and uh, do what you think is right. Susan? What keeps me going? This is a very good question. Well, for sure, anger. You know, it's, it's this word in, in Polish, which means wkurzenie. I know it's, it's, it's hard to repeat, but it's just this internal anger that, and anger meaning lack of consent for what's going on. And there is also this sense of responsibility. Like, you know, this, those young people now protesting against the climate change, uh, saying there is no other planet, there is also no other homeland, and, and Poland is, is my homeland. And, and I just want to change it. And, and, and this, this, this direction seems to be so clear. I, I want everyone to feel safe in my home country, and I want everyone to feel welcome here. And this is so easy on the one hand and so hard on the other, because something that is for me obvious and clear, and how can anyone dispute that awkwardly can? Well, thank you both. You're both patriots, which is a word that comes to mind and is not very popular in the 21st century, but clearly does apply in both of your cases. So thank you for this conversation and thank you for your work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Now it's your turn. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergprize.org. Thanks again, and most importantly, don't forget to nominate a leader whose work deserves to be recognised and imitated. This podcast brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.